is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. The RAF joins the shooting war, but have the villains already done a runner? The minister drops the big hint the jury's still out on Syria. If we decide that we need to help the international effort in Syria, then of course we would go back to Parliament and seek the authority there in a vote and another debate. The new Afghan president signs the security deal. And what's the umbrella revolution got to do with Britain? RAF jets have launched more airstrikes against Islamic State extremists in northern Iraq. The tornadoes destroyed an IS pickup truck with a guided bomb. Well, Richard Spencer from the Daily Telegraph is in Iraq and he joins us now. Hello, Richard. Just tell us, you witnessed these attacks, didn't you? What were you doing and tell us what happened? Well, I was, uh, yesterday afternoon, I was in the border town of Rabia on the Iraqi-Syria border uh, where a uh, big advance by the Kurds had taken most of this important border town but they were uh, being, they'd been blocked by a group of ISIS militants in, uh, in the old hospital um, in particular a new annex that was being built. They were completely surrounded these ISIS guys but there were about 30 of them still holed up inside and uh, halfway through the afternoon the, uh, the Kurdish troops of Peshmerga called in for air support and uh, that was when we saw uh, uh, what well, we didn't see, we heard the jets come in and uh, deliver a whole load of ordnance onto um, onto this hospital where the jihadis were. Uh, it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, when we checked with the, uh, the, uh, the colonel we were talking to, uh, he said he'd been told that uh, it was, in fact, an RAF, um, uh, RAF tornado that had carried out that attack. And you were there immediately before. Just describe the situation on the ground then. Well, I'd say we, we, when we were there, they, they were expecting an airstrike. They had already told us they'd uh, called one in. So they were they were hanging back, but they were surrounding this hospital, which is in the middle of this town. Uh, the 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 Peshmerga were all around the town, uh, but they were still sort of shooting from this uh, this hospital building in the middle. Uh, but there was a sort of pause while they waited for this strike to come in, and we waited there and stood uh, stood on a on a on a rise uh, overlooking the town. We were about 300 yards from the hospital uh, when the attack came in, and of course a, a huge pall of smoke went up in the air and uh, dust, and uh, took about five minutes to clear. Well, clearly you see the hospital was still there, but it was damaged, but they, uh, some of the guys were still inside firing. And, and you say you, you didn't see it, but you heard it. Do you know how many aircraft were involved? Was it both tornadoes? Well, I, I'd say I saw, I saw the strike, but of course the jets fly so far um, overhead that they're, they're totally out of sight to the naked eye. Um, and of course, uh, moving uh, faster than uh, we can uh, we can see. Um, so, so you know, all you hear from on the ground is this: uh, you hear the rumble of the jets going round, they're circling, and they're uh, they're being briefed and getting the coordinates, and uh, uh, one assumes. Uh, and then suddenly, you hear a very different pitch, uh, different uh, pitch of sound as they as they roar in. Uh, I mean, it's very hard to tell whether there was one jet or two. I mean, it seemed like one from where we were, but, uh, you know, we could just have misheard that. You, you say that the, the Kurdish Peshmerga were, were expecting the RAF to come in. They were expecting these attacks. What about IS? There were people still inside the hospital, weren't they? Do you know about the casualties? Did you oh, know yeah. whether... No, uh, I mean, obviously, we, we, we didn't get to speak to them, so we don't know what they were thinking, but uh, they, they must have been hearing the, uh, hearing the jets overhead. I mean, it's a very distinctive sound. Do you have any idea how many people were killed? 
no, not yet. Uh, we hope to find out shortly. I'm just uh, the, 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 the as I say, they they continue to hold out until uh, this morning uh, in the hospital. Uh, we're we're back on the edge of town, and uh, I'm just with a Peshmerga uh, uh, escort who are, who are they've been clearing the. Um, uh, they've been checking the hospital for for, for booby traps uh, and uh, explosives, uh, booby trapping these these uh, last stand uh, redoubts is a, is a is a common item tactic. Uh, so they've been clearing that, and we've been promised that they will take it into hospital to see what they see uh, any minute now. Richard, uh, just briefly, do, do you get any sense of what kind of an impact on IS these kind of attacks is making? At the moment, they're very small and localised, um, but that, that's not unimportant. Uh, what really strikes you when, when you're on the ground here is that, uh, that while ISIS seem to be able to make these huge uh, sweeping advances through undefended territory uh, because of the disorganisation of the Iraqi army and, the, uh, and on the Syrian side of the border, the, 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 the chaos of Syria and the disintegration of the Syrian uh, army, uh, with air support, specific forces like the Kurdish Peshmerga uh, or the YPG, maybe in Syria, these Kurdish militias, parts of the Iraqi army, uh, in very specific areas, they can make ground with uh, air support and uh, and coordination from the special forces of the British and American special forces we know are here. Um, but it's slow progress on uh, making ground against these uh, ISIS forces. So, uh, you know, this is the second time I've been in the town, which has been. Uh, cleared after uh, airstrikes. The first one was a town that was cleared after, after the Americans managed to clear the front lines and, and, and sort of like pave a way in for the Peshmerga. Uh, but to, to do with such accuracy each time, I mean, it's a very slow program. All right. Okay, Richard Spencer, there we'll leave it. Thank you very much for your time. That's Richard Spencer from the Daily Telegraph. Well, BFBS reporter James Hurst has been speaking to the Defence Secretary on this subject, Michael Fallon. Well, the RAF have been flying every day and at night ever since Parliament gave the authority uh, the go-ahead last week. They've been flying to gather intelligence on ISIL. They've been flying in close support of the ground uh, operation that's going on. And they're ready to be used by ground commanders when particular targets are identified. That happened for the first time yesterday. There were two strikes. Both of those were successful. And the RAF were in action again overnight. Is it inevitable, as one of your cabinet colleagues seems to have suggested, that, that British action in Syria will come onto the political agenda and will probably happen? Well, we've always made it clear that ISIL can only be defeated in both countries, both in Iraq and in Syria, because it's headquartered in Syria. That's where the threat is coming from. That's where their equipment and personnel are. And that's where the very welcome American strikes have been taking place. But at the moment, we don't have authority from Parliament. We're taking this one step at a time. Or will you seek it? We have authority. Well, we'll see how we go in Iraq. And, uh, and we haven't taken that decision yet. But if we decide that we need to help the international effort in Syria, then of course we would go back to Parliament and seek the authority there in a vote and another debate. That was Defence Secretary Michael Fallon speaking to James Hurst. Well, I'm joined now by both Foreign Affairs Analyst Martin McCauley and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. The Turkish Parliament votes today on whether to use its armed forces to fight against Islamic State militants in Iraq and Syria. Christopher, explain why this is so important. The importance of this is that the Turkish Parliament um, has been reluctant to let other aircraft, in other words, for example, the United States Air Force, uh, use the airbase, the big airbase at Incholuk. And this is extremely important for maintaining long-term attacks on 
Syria, if necessary, and, and also Iraq, and also to allow Turkish forces to go into Syria, if necessary, to take the war into there. And so it becomes a mandate because it's a renewal of that. If, if they just say, yes, we'll go along with the mandate, as, as, as very likely today, later today, later this evening, uh, if they say that, that's fine, because the Americans, they know that they've got a forward operating base. The Turks' reluctance is because ISIS will then turn around and say, right, Turkey, you are a legitimate target. Martin, how much of a difference could Turkey's involvement make? They're the only army who could really take on uh, Syria, the only ground troops who could really take on uh, ISIS in uh, Syria, because if you look at the uh, the, the army, uh, the, the opposition, the various feuding sections and so on, they're not really effective. Very few. Uh, apparently 5,000 are going to be trained in Jordan and Saudi Arabia. That will take time and so on. So if, in fact, there's to be an attack on uh, uh, ISIS, uh, IS in Syria, it will really have to come from the Turkish ones. They're the only credible ones. But as uh, everyone says, if uh, Turkey gets involved, then it becomes a target. Uh, and they've already been shelling. Uh, some parts of uh, the border, parts of Turkey, and Turkey is very, very keen not to get involved at this present because it's like spaghetti. You get involved and you get entangled and so on. Uh, but the Turks, in the long run, uh, want to dominate Sy Syria. Christopher. ISIS have, are hitting a town just a couple of miles over the border from Turkey. Uh, and if they get that town, then that becomes a basis... Uh, for attacks in Turkey itself. So this is not just a political problem that the Turkish parliament is going through and the recently uh, elected president of, uh, of, of Turkey. It is a very straightforward military problem as well. And that is important because they are the only people apart from Jordan in the area that we can rely on as allies. And don't forget, Turkey is a NATO member. The RAF tornadoes are flying out of RAF Aquitiri in Cyprus from where we can now speak to BFBS reporter Simon Newton. Uh, Simon, I understand the MOD are being fairly tight-lipped about what's been going on there. Can you tell us about what's called Op Shader so far? Well, the military would use this, this term dynamic operation. In other words, the, the tornadoes here seem to be used almost as a, as a fast reaction asset, really, over Iraq. They've launched four airstrikes now, uh, the latest yesterday. And in all of them, it seems they've been called in to help forces on the ground or, or to basically hunt for targets of, opera, of uh, opportunity. Now, we've, we've seen them hit Islamic State fighters and also heavy weapons positions in several cases as you heard from Richard Spencer earlier, to support Kurdish Peshmerga in the northwest of Iraq. Now, by our count, they've launched five brimstone missiles and at least two of these 500-pound Paveway 4 laser-guided bombs, which incidentally cost about £30,000 each. Uh, and as Richard mentioned, there's strong speculation that these airstrikes are being called in by, by Western special forces on the ground, the Americans down near Baghdad with the Iraqi forces and the Brits in the northwest of Iraq helping the Peshmerga. How many aircraft are involved? Well, there's six Tornado GR4s here at Aquitiri. They're from two Army Cooperation Squadron, two AC Squadron. They arrived here in August uh, when those humanitarian flights began to Mount Sinjar, if you remember, and they've, they've now switched from that surveillance role to one of, or armed reconnaissance role to one of attack. 
they fly from here in pairs. We see on average two sorties a day leaving here and following them very closely is this Voyager refueling aircraft, which of course allows them to fly these very long, sometimes um, eight hour or so missions. Now the RAF allowed us down to the flight line yesterday to have a look. We couldn't go anywhere near these aircraft because they were armed. Uh, but you could see just by looking at them from the dark streaks on the tails, for instance, of these aircraft, that they are being used around the clock now. It's very intensive flying. These crews flying very long, very gruelling missions over uh, what, of course, is very dangerous territory. Is there any word on how long the squadron will be able to continue this? Well... Number two squadron is usually based at RAF Marham in Norfolk. As I say, they arrived on the 13th of August. They completed their final tour of Afghanistan earlier this year. Incidentally, one interesting fact is that this, was the, this is the oldest fixed-wing squadron in the world. It was the squadron that fitted the first ever airborne cameras back in 1914. As for the likely duration, it's very difficult to say. Um, of course, the six tornadoes are flying pretty relentless sorties, so you, you'd expect them really to either be replaced or perhaps more likely really to be supplemented by aircraft, a detachment of aircraft from elsewhere, although its sister squadron, 31, which is also based at Marham, has just deployed to Kandahar. Um, now, this squadron is supposed to be disbanded next March and then swap to the Typhoon and, and move up to Lossiemouth, um, but depending how long this goes on, you could expect perhaps ministers to, to look at reconsidering that, to put that on hold, not least because some of these very high-tech weapons they're firing, uh, the Brimstone in particular, which is particularly good at hitting small mobile targets, can't yet be fitted uh, to the Typhoon. All right, Simon Newton at RAF Aquaterian Cyprus, thank you. Uh, Christopher, why do they always, or in this situation, why are they flying in twos? Because that's what you do on an operation, on a, on a, on a, certainly, on, certainly on an opportunity target operation. You fly in pairs, uh, a, and so that you one actually can sort of stand off, one can do, do, even do uh, target guidance as well. That's the important. But they, it, it's rather like sort of hop along Cassidy and his mate. They, they just go to get, they, they just go together. The other thing which is imp important of this uh, uh, to remember is that on the ground uh, we've got special forces who are doing laser targeting for these guys. And in 91, when they were flying in, uh, let's say, in, in in Iraq, in the Iraq war then, at first they didn't have laser guidance. They had to send out new aircraft or very old aircraft, the Buccaneers, to do it. The, the crucial thing is that the command for this whole thing now is happening as a, command, uh, a combined headquarters down in Gaha. And that is the important thing. It is, it is still... We think of it RAF because, you know, we're being, you know, supportive in that sense. Um, but it is a joint operation, and Qatar is very important uh, down at Al-Duid uh, uh, Air Force Base, where it's with the Americans who are running the show, and that's where they're operating, and that's where they get the targets from. Stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, who's the new man at the top of NATO? And could UK troops be deployed to West Africa to fight Ebola? This is BFBS SITREP. On the subject of NATO, the man who was, until recently, the second most important military commander in Europe, General Sir Richard Shiraf, has been talking to BFBS. Tim Cooper began by asking about Britain's contribution to the international coalition against IS. Our power will not do it. And if Britain wants to have influence, maintain that strong, regain, in a sense, the strong relationship with America, uh, six tornadoes is not enough. What should it have? Well, as I said, this requires a comprehensive strategy. Um, there's no question, of course, that six tornadoes will have a tactical effect. And, but I have to say, um, destroying a, a, ta a, ta a technical 
from the air with a you know with a bomb with a with a with a with a paveway or whatever it is from a from a tornado is a is is a, is a bloody expensive or a very expensive way of doing it. Um, but to go back to the the strategy, like any war, this will only be won when people get on the ground to do it. In terms of what happens next, that's the question that's sort of exercising the minds of a lot of people, particularly within the British military. Um, what would be your strong advice to the politicians, to the current crop of military leaders? What should they do? Well, this thing will run and run, and it will not work if we leave it at six tornadoes as a contribution to the coalition. As I said earlier, it will only, we will only move forward if, if there is a proper training and advising and assistance mission. So my strongest recommendation would be to put together a, a proper, well-found well uh, a, a training and advisory mission for, for the Iraqi army, for the Kurds, and indeed for the, for the Free Syrian army as well. Uh, and if, if, for example, the British were to get involved in training the Iraqi army, uh, that would involve, as I say, mentoring and training and assistance at company level uh, and at battalion level. It will require force protection. It will require quick reaction forces able to respond if your people get into trouble. It will require enablers such as helicopters, logistics, IS, ISR and the like. Um, and it will require the right command and control. So this is a big issue. But it's not something, it is absolutely something that the British Army is perfectly matched, perfectly capable of doing and would do the job uh, extremely well. In terms of numbers for what you're proposing, what, what sort of numbers of people would need to be involved in that from the British Spain? And in numbers, it's big. It's, it's a lot. You're going to need, you're probably going to need um, upward of, of 10,000 at least in order to, to, bring up and to, to, to bring on the Iraqi army. And that's significant. I mean, you're, talk you're talking about focusing on divisions. If you multiply, you know, you can get a piece of paper out, you can work out a mentoring team, mentoring team, four mentoring teams at company level, a mentoring team at battalion level. Uh, well, that's five teams for a battalion. X number of battalions, X number of brigades, you can begin to work it out for yourself. That was General Sir Richard Sheriff talking to Tim Cooper. Well, still with us is Foreign Affairs Analyst Martin McCauley and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Martin, what do you think about what you just heard there from the General? Um, it's a very, very slippery slope because the uh, people in this country are against intervention in Syria. Uh, they're ambivalent about Iraq. Iraq is one thing. Uh, but Syria is a completely different ball game uh, because of Iraq, the previous experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, very, very difficult to bring the people in this country uh, on, on board. So he's saying you should go in and train the Iraqi army. Well, the Afghan army was trained and look what happened to it. So therefore, there's no guarantee it'll be successful in the long term. And You've got an election coming up next year and no government wants to get itself involved in something which is controversial, that the opposition could attack them and so on. So therefore I think that from Britain's point of view... So you think that, do you think that there will be no British involvement I in Syria? I think it would be very, very limited uh, until at least after the election. Christopher? Um, the, gen the general talking about, for example, uh, you can't do this with six tornadoes. You're not doing it with six tornadoes. There's a whole bunch of tornadoes. There's a whole bunch of uh, cruise missiles and American uh, both shipborne and land-based aircraft. But I suppose what he's suggesting is, is, you know, boots on the ground at some stage. Isn't well, it? yeah, but it don't have to be British boots. I mean, mm. I think we've got to get away from the idea 
that, uh, my goodness, you know, we can't do this job with six tornadoes. We're not trying to do it with that. What's happening is the Americans are saying to the Brits, listen, opportunity targets especially, which is what we're doing more or less at the moment. Opportunity, you've got two aircraft flying together, one sees something, one says we get clearance for that, can we get the information back and that, and we hit them. Now, that's all very well. Look at the long term, though. If you want to train the uh, Iraq army. You've got to start again. And what do you do? You train the middle management, company commander level, C- senior NCO. You, ta- you don't bother about so much about half sort of half colonel level, battalion level, or anything like that. You do that. Then you get them doing their own training. But you get a monitoring of that training. Now, if he's talking about that Yes, you can do it, but you can't do it by yourself. You're going to get, you've got to get the Iraqi government to allow you to do it. You've got to know where you're going to train them, bring them out. And that is why a minister will tell you that we're probably there for like five years. Uh, Martin, you mentioned Afghanistan there, and this week the government of Afghanistan finally approved this long-delayed security mm-hmm. deal to allow US forces to remain in the country beyond the, beyond the end of this year. It's signed at a televised ceremony in the presence of Afghanistan's new president, Ashraf Ghani. Christopher, a long time coming, all of this. Ah, uh, ages coming. And the reason that it's been ages coming is twofold. One was the fact that uh, the previous uh, uh, president, President Karzai, took a long time going. Also, the fact that he would not sign uh, this agreement, this bilateral agreement, so-called bilateral security agreement. He refused to do so. He said, if I do that, then we will be blamed for everything that goes wrong after it. But now it's done. Um, You've got a very good team there. Mm. Very good team, especially with the former foreign foreign minister uh, uh, Abdullah Abdullah, and so that is that that is that is the good news. Martin, is the cause for optimism? Yes, uh, but uh, looking at Afghanistan uh, and it's a tribal society, and any deal you do uh, may in fact fracture. So therefore, I would be a guarded optimist because I would say uh, that Afghanistan. They will decide for themselves. And if you look at the suicide uh, attacks all the time, the Taliban is still there uh, and sees itself as the next master of Afghanistan. We should remember this bilateral security agreement, it really doesn't go any further than 2016. Now, that ain't very far off, is it? And then Mm, you've got the same problem. And don't forget that what we're seeing at the moment is a resurgence of Taliban at the moment. Why have we got that? Because uh, air power has Hmm. been withdrawn. And what happens when you withdraw air power in, say, Iraq, you will get resurgence of IS. We're back to air power again. But actually, let's just carry on talking about deals because there was one signed on the last day of Anya's for Rasmussen's tenure as NATO Secretary-General. Uh, we have a new NATO Secretary-General. Christopher, who is he? One of the things that we've got going for us at the moment, especially with, uh, uh, I suppose, the whole principle of the Secretary-General at the moment is questioning whether, in fact, we need one and whether, in fact, you need NATO. You would ask that, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, why not? I uh, know it, it is. It is the crucial point. Uh, Rasmussen's been very good. He's been absolute sort of first class. He joined as Secretary General with all the uh, the ability uh, that you would expect from an ex Prime Minister of Denmark. Um, he joined at the worst possible time, and he proved once and for all that the Secretary General has no influence. All he can do, he has reference. Mm-hmm. He can actually refer other people to what other people think. And that is it. And, but I think we're going to get in the position now that we, uh, that the whole movement of NATO to an out-of-area organisation has been proved by Afghanistan, and that's where it will stay. Uh, Martin, the new man in the job, Jens Stoltenberg, what's he got to get done? Uh, he's got to make NATO credi- credible, 
Uh, but of course, he's got an enemy in the East. Russia has identified NATO as the prime uh, enemy, and therefore you, that, you start with that. You, that's that's very good for NATO, uh, but it's also very good for Russia because uh, the two sides, in the end, will have to talk to one another. The other thing to remember, of course, he he uh, he's a Norwegian, yeah, and the importance of that is that Norway has spent eighty years being threatened across the north. It's, it's northern uh, coastline uh, by the Russians. They think that Russian is danger all the time and that's what you, you've now got a, a, the first ever Secretary General since Pagisme who thinks that. Tens of thousands of pro-democracy de- demonstrators have taken to the streets of Hong Kong this week. They're angry about the Chinese government's ruling, which limits who can stand as a candidate in elections for the territory's leader. Uh, gentlemen, um, Martin, to you, um, should the British military be concerned about this? And if so, why? Uh, not at present. Uh, it could, in fact, uh, uh, roll over into mainland China. And, uh, of course, you're thinking of Tiananmen Square here, 19... 19- uh, 89. Uh, but Xi Jinping, who's the president of China, is this, probably the strongest president since Mao Zedong, and he will not tolerate any dissent. Uh, look at Xinjiang last week, uh, recently, 40 dead and so on. They used the mailed fist. So therefore, uh, Xi Jinping will, will issue, um, through his um, ministers, and through his uh, people in Hong Kong, uh, you can go so far, but in the end, Beijing rules. And uh, they're talking about uh, one man, one vote in 2017. But of course, if the Hong Kongers actually elect the person of uh, of their choice, Beijing may not appoint him. So in the end, the ace is held by Beijing. Christopher. Um, This is the biggest decision that any Chinese leader has had to face over since Tiananmen Square. How tough to be. Yeah, how tough to be? How hard can you be uh, since Tiananmen Square? And Tiananmen Square is basically the image that China has still got. That doesn't mean to say that they collapse, but that's it. The biggest difference between now and Tiananmen Square, uh, and Tiananmen Square was an example, and and the present leadership hope is still an example where the rest of China doesn't know about it, is that Tiananmen Square didn't have iPhones. And this, the word of what's going on in so Hong Kong is spreading. So what difference do you think that now, makes? Because more people know, therefore more people become sort of um, perhaps braver, becomes, they become more abrasive, they might like to try one, something like this or, themselves. Or it may, so, may, may calm things down, might but do. Let's, let's, let's look at this from, uh, if, you, if, if you were the British military, um, why would you be bothered about it? Or you may not be bothered, but why would you take an interest? Every morning, uh, let's say commander in, commanders-in-chief, uh, at, at Wilton, the army, mm-hmm. uh, and then northward for the navy, etc. Every morning they have morning briefings. Third on, on the morning briefing is the defence intelligence officer. He will be giving a briefing exactly what is going on. They'll even give the weather over China and different parts of it. It is it is that high on the military uh, calendar, if you like. Now, yeah. why would it be that? is because, although it's not often talked about, we still deploy, certainly the Navy deploy to the, to, to the South China uh, Seas and also to the Pacific. We take part in exercises which assumes that China may kick up dust in, in that area of the Pacific. And, and, of course, until 1997, Martin, there were British 
you know, was a military present there, yeah. presence there as well. And, and remember that the Chinese are extremely sensitive about foreign intervention or foreign interf- interference. Uh, Hong Kong went back to China in 1997, and for 50 years it's under a special dispensation. Uh, and uh, the Umbrella Revolution, they are in fact demanding the resignation of the chief executive, uh, which may be going too far. Uh, the business community in Hong Kong has to take over and do a deal with the demonstrators. Monty, you're absolutely right about the Chinese don't like interference. This is why they won't vote in the Security Council the way we would like to vote, for example, interference in Syria, Iraq. Afghanistan, you do not interfere in other people's business because you may get enough guff to in behind you to interfere in Chinese business. All right, be- before we go today, uh, Christopher, just got to mention the big international conference on Ebola that's taking place in London. It's taking place in London. It, the idea is that you, you can put together a whole um, uh, sort of operation to try and provide beds, staff, uh, drugs etc., to get into that part of West Africa, the three countries of West Africa, where we're told at the moment it is possible we'll be looking at something like a million dead by Christmas. Last week the figure was 2,000. They're now getting a, a realistic view. It is very possible when you think that we're going to have to send, we've promised to send a medical staff, etc., uh, part of that medical uh, uh, deployment will be from the military, where the military have the operational detail and the operational experience of being able to say, right, guys, off we go. We take all the equipment with us. We know how to get on with the job. We have the wiring diagram to do this successfully. So I think the British military, in a peaceful way, will be involved in West Africa quite soon. And I, I don't want to be trivial, but I'm going to be, because um, the army's easing restrictions on hand and neck tattoos. It's emerged, Christopher. The strict rules are being eased. I know, and that's because... Because it's a favourite subject of ours. Well, it is a favourite subject, and I, I suspect that they want to get uh, the backing and the uh, the presentation values of the Beckhams on this. <laughs> um, I, I th- well, David Beckham was showing his tattoos out in Afghanistan, well, wasn't he? That, that's absolutely right, and I think you now can have tattoos probably almost anywhere, God forbid. On that note, we must end. Martin McCauley, thank you very much for joining us, Christopher. Good to see you as ever. That's it for this week. We'll be back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. News, news, sports, sports, and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.